Welcome to the Illuminated Word Podcast. In this podcast, we take a reading from Scripture each day. We look at the background material to that passage and also application for us. Once again, welcome to the Illuminated Word Podcast. Today we're doing something a little bit different with the Illuminated Word Podcast. We're providing double podcasts. And the reason for that is many listeners do not attend Westgate Church. At Westgate, we recently went through Romans chapter 8 in a sermon series. So you'll notice that in our podcast, we skipped from Romans 7 to Romans chapter 9. You may be thinking, well, I would love to hear that teaching on Romans 8. So we're providing these extra podcasts for people that may want to listen to those sermons. These are going to be a little bit more lengthy than our podcast. Uh, But I think you'll enjoy them if you want some teaching from Romans 8, probably one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible. So this first sermon, this first podcast on Romans 8, is coming from Romans 8, 1 through 4. And the title of this sermon was, From Condemned to Free. We hope you enjoy and thank you for tuning in. I want to share with you a story of a family. Every time they would go out somewhere, they would put the cat outside. And so this couple, they get a taxi. The taxi shows up. They put the cat out of the house, but as they're leaving the house, the cat dashes back into the house. Well, they get out to the taxi, and the wife decides, well, I'm going to go in and tell the the guy, the taxi driver, that he needs to wait just a minute. You need to go back in the house. So the husband dashes back in the house to take care of the cat. The wife goes to the taxi driver, and she starts to think for a minute. She says, you know, I really don't want this guy to think that the house is unoccupied, that it's, you know, empty. So she tells the guy, well, my husband has gone back to check on my mother. Well, the husband dashes back to the taxi, runs, jumps in, looks at the taxi driver, looks at his wife and says, you're not going to believe that crazy old thing. She was under the bed and I had to poke her with a clothes hanger to get her to move. Well, sometimes misunderstanding can be important. Missing the point can be important. And we're going to start a new series of lessons starting today on the book of Romans, specifically Romans chapter 8. We're going to have seven sermons on this wonderful chapter. We're going to plumb the depths of Romans chapter 8. And Romans chapter 8 is so important in Scripture. Paul has so much theology and information about the gospel and about salvation. But many times we can miss the point of this entire chapter. We can forget things, maybe even about our salvation. And today I'm hoping as we go through these series of lessons, you'll be reminded of some things maybe you've forgotten about what you have in Christ. I can't help but think back a time when I lost my driver's license. People that know me well will think, well, that's not shocking that you lost your driver's license. But I lost it and I looked everywhere. I blamed Allison. I blamed the kids. I blamed the animals. I blamed everyone because of my missing driver's license. I'll never forget months later after I'd already ordered a new driver's license, I put on my heavy winter jacket and I fill in the pocket and lo and behold, there is my driver's license. I found what had been lost. And I'm hoping that in these lessons that you'll find some things maybe you've lost, some ideas you've forgotten about, about your walk with Christ. But we also can miss the point of this chapter. We can get bogged down in the minutia of detail of Romans 8. Maybe you've been in those classes before. I hope not here at Westgate, but those classes where you argue about a single word in a passage and then you miss the entire point of what the writer intended for you to understand. We do that with with Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, we can argue about what Paul means about the flesh. 
We can argue about condemnation. We can argue about predestination. We can argue about all those minute details and we can totally miss the point of this chapter. It makes me think of the Gettysburg Address. In the Gettysburg Address, Lincoln gives this majestic speech, maybe one of the most important speeches in the history of our country. In 271 words, Lincoln changes the trajectory of this country. He redefines basically what it means to be an American, to be America itself. You may remember the beginning of that speech. It's one that we heard in school that was so beautiful. It's hard to believe he wrote it on the way on the train as he's coming to uh, Gettysburg. Some say he had the beginning of smallpox. He was sick when he gave this speech. But here on November 18th, In 1863, in this cemetery being dedicated to these soldiers that have lost their lives, he starts this way. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. So with a sleight of hand, scholars say Lincoln is doing something really shrewd. He is now taking this idea of freedom that's a beautiful idea that's found in our Constitution He's applying it to black and white alike. He's saying that everyone should be protected by the Constitution and have these rights. So he's fundamentally changing the trajectory of our country. Now imagine if people come along later and they looked at Lincoln's speech and they argued about, well, what did Lincoln mean by fathers? Who are the fathers Lincoln's talking about? What if they argued about the continent? Was Lincoln confused? I mean, why was he talking about the continent? Would that not include Canada too? And they get bogged down in the minutia of detail of the speech and they miss the main idea of what Lincoln was trying to convey. And I will just say, be careful and don't do that with Romans 8. Romans 8, which is so important because it's a message from God to us. Let's do not miss the heart of this chapter. And what Romans chapter 8 is trying to convey is a cosmic big picture view of things. Paul is telling a group of people that are suffering, listen, It's going to be okay because God is going to redeem all things. All things are going to be redeemed. This this planet itself somehow will be redeemed. We will be revealed. Yes, we're saved now, but there's this future revelation of glory that's coming. This new creation is coming, and that is what Romans 8 is about. That that we are to be reminded that when things are tough and things are awful and horrible, that nothing will separate us from the love that we have in God, in Christ. We are reminded of this, as you see on the banners. We have new banners for this sermon series, that in Christ, God is for us. And that should comfort us no matter what we're going through at this time. God is for us. And today we're going to look at a rich phrase, a phrase, condemned to free. We were once condemned but now we are free. And today we're going to look at three aspects of this idea, things we need to realize, things we need to grapple with and and come to understand with this idea of being condemned and now being free. And the first is this. Condemnation to freedom means realizing that we need rescue. We've got to realize that we need rescue. Now I'm going to say something that may seem simple, but it's very important. This book was written to Christians. This book, Romans, was written to an already existing church. When Paul set out to write this book, he was not setting out to write a theological treatise that would be the most powerful book probably ever written in the history of mankind. 
He was writing it to encourage and build up a church. He wanted this church, Rome, to be the base of operation for his new mission opportunity in Western Europe. Paul, if you read Romans 15, he wanted to go to Gaul. He wanted to go to Spain and and what we would know as France today and take the gospel to Western Europe. And Rome would be the base of operation. So this book is written to Christians. You need to let that sink in. This is written to people that are already Christians. Many times people take the book of Romans and they use it as an evangelistic tool. And that's okay. You can do that. But that's not the main intention of Paul. He's trying to remind Christians of what we have in Jesus Christ. So please hold on to that idea. So as we start to think about what Paul is trying to tell us, we need to listen in Dothan, 21st century, or wherever you are watching this video. Paul is reminding Christians of these things. And here's some things he's reminding them. If you read through Romans chapter 1 through chapter 7, in our podcast, Illuminated Word, we're going to go through the other parts of Romans we're not covering in the sermon. So you can listen to those as we study through the entire book of Romans, hopefully. That's our goal. But as we read through Romans chapter 1 through chapter 7, we find out that humanity has a problem. That no one stands righteous before God. Whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, a barbarian, a Greek, a Roman, it doesn't matter what your nationality is. It doesn't matter what your pedigree is. We all stand condemned before God without Christ. Without Jesus, we are hopeless. Now, I want to just give you a caveat and be clear about something. And I want to say this before I get to my next idea. And here's what I am not saying today. I do not believe that we are personally held responsible for the sin of Adam, this idea of inherited guilt. I don't, I don't believe the Bible teaches that. So please hear me correctly when I say the next thing. I'm not saying that we have inherited the guilt of Adam in some way. But I will say this, when Paul talks about the flesh, Paul talks about the flesh a lot in the book of Romans, and people get so crossed up when they hear that word flesh. He uses it in a lot of different contexts in different ways, but a lot of times Paul is not referring to like your skin and your bones and your hair and your veins and your arteries and your organs. We as Western Americans, we kind of hear it that way sometimes. And we miss the point from Paul's Jewish framework, what he means by flesh. When Paul talks about the flesh, usually he's talking about the part of us that's in rebellion to God. There was a rebellion. Mankind rebelled against God and his good plan. And there's a part of us that runs through all of us. Paul calls it epithemia, the sinful passions. There's something about us that we have in our fleshly existence these desires that are disordered toward the opposite of what God wants. It's in rebellion to what God wants for us. So Paul is saying that is a problem that we have as human beings. And it is a big problem. Part of us, we are captured in this old world, this old paradigm of rebellion. And that would be the flesh, according to Paul, this epithemia, these desires that that really are disordered and lead us to war or away from what God wants for us. And so we see the emotion of Paul come out in Romans 7. Now, this is an important point. Remember, when Paul originally wrote these letters, or wrote this letter in particular, there were no chapter divisions. Chapter 7 flowed right into chapter 8. So the end of chapter 7 sets us up for the beginning of chapter 8. So when you go to the end of chapter 7, you see how Paul 
really phrases this problem. There, there is a problem here. So let's go back and look at Romans 7, verses 22 through 24. Paul says this, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you feel the emotion of Paul? Paul says, I'm a wretched man. There's something at war with God's good commandment. God's commandment comes, and in some way I rebel against it, and it's not really what I want to do in my mind, but there's something wrong. And so he gives this condition that we as humans are in without Christ, and in chapter 8 he gives the answer to that predicament. So we go to Romans 8 verse 1 and get this answer. Very famous verse, but but it's actually based off what Paul just said in Romans 7. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I've heard preachers say this my whole life. When you see the word therefore, you need to ask the question, what is it there for? And it's linking us back to these ideas, what he's just said in Romans 7. Therefore, there's no condemnation. So in Christ, in some way, there's liberation from condemnation. But we need to stop for a second. And let's just think together. Let's reason together. Because when you say the word condemnation in, in today's current climate of Christianity, even, even in the church, and outside the walls of the church, so to speak, there is a huge pushback against the idea of judgment and condemnation. You'll hear people say, well, I thought that was old school. I mean, I thought the church moved past that. I mean, Christians will say this. I thought condemnation was something we heard 50 years ago. And God's judgment, you'd hear these preachers preach hellfire and brimstone. I mean, that's old school. We've We've moved past that. I mean, we've learned so much Greek and semantics and manuscript evidence. Surely the Bible doesn't teach this. But here's the the sobering news. When you look at this word condemnation and you look at the best lexicons and the, the Greek scholars, they all agree this is talking about our penalty, the penalty for sin. So condemnation, condemnation means, guess what? Condemnation. Paul means what he says here. There is this idea of judgment to come, and people recoil at this idea of judgment to come. Now, I've shared with you this scholar before. He's a guy that I've read, and and there's a lot of things about his writings I admire, some things I would question. But there's a guy by the name of Miroslav Volf, and Miroslav Volf is a a Croatian Bible scholar. And, And I met him, I guess, about a year ago at Lipscomb. He spoke, and I got to meet him, but he wrote a book. And this book came right after uh, the Bosnian Wars. And he's talking in this book, Exclusion and Embrace, about this endless cycle of violence. How can we as humanity break an endless cycle of reciprocity, of, of violence upon violence? You hurt me, then in turn I come and I hurt you as an act of reciprocity. He says, how do we stop that? So in his book, he lays out a thesis And in this thesis, he's talking about, okay, how do we stop the endless cycle of violence? So let me read to you the quote from Miroslav Volf. He says this, here's the thesis. We should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. So there's the thesis. Can you tell someone that's experienced, now think about this, horrible injustice. Hey, don't retaliate. God is non-coercive love. Now listen to the rest of his quote. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. 
in a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. Now listen to what Wolf is saying. He's saying the only place where people have a problem with God's judgment is in suburban America, in places where things have been hunky-dory for a real long time, where people have not suffered injustice like people did in Bosnia. It's really easy for us to sit back and go, you know what? I don't like the idea of God being a judge. I want God just to be a God of complete love that just accepts everyone. And Volf says if you go to places like Croatia, you go to places like Rwanda, places where they've experienced horrible injustice, and they've seen terrible things out of humanity, they are okay with God's justice and God's judgment. And deep inside, we know that we crave God's justice. When we see bad things happen in this world, we see terrible things done to people, we say, someone must pay for that. Deep inside, we know it's true. Now, we do have a problem. It tends to be, when it comes to judgment, I have 20-20 vision when it comes to other people's sins. You know, I can take a microscope and I can dissect your sin. I can tell you all day long what's wrong with you, and I'm pretty good at that. But what I'm really bad at is having 20-20 vision when it comes to my sin. And Paul is saying, if you want to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you better be honest about your own sin and come to grips with where you are without Jesus Christ. We would be hopeless. We need rescue. And that takes me to my second point. Condemnation to freedom means we need a remedy. There's condemnation. We need rescue. So what is the remedy to this situation? Now, I just want to throw this out here. As we talk about condemnation, people really miss the point sometimes. They, they can get derailed. And they have a real false view of God. One positive of this time of, of social media, evangelism, so to speak, of our services being out there for everyone to watch. And I'm so thankful everyone can watch, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you agree with what I'm saying or not. I want everyone to, to hear this and give it a fair hearing, hopefully. We do get some interaction with people that don't believe these things, some people that would claim to be atheists and agnostic that send us messages and, and talk to us about these things. And one thing I've learned about the pushback you get sometimes as a Christian from someone that may claim to be an atheist is they claim they don't believe in God, but I like to ask them this question, which God do you not believe in? Because a lot of times what they claim they don't believe in is a construct of God that's not true. I mean, it's so true of a guy by the name of Christopher Hitchens who has now passed away, but Christopher Hitchens wrote a book that's really famous in a lot of ways. People have heard, maybe you've heard of it. It's called God is Not Great. And here's a quote from Hitchens. Now listen to what he's saying here, and he's really got a caricature of who God really is. Listen to, his, to this quote. He says, I think it would be rather awful if it was true that God exists, if there was a permanent, total, round-the-clock divine supervision and invigilation of everything you did. You would never have a waking or sleeping moment when you weren't being watched or controlled and supervised by some celestial entity. From the moment of your conception to the moment of your death, it would be like living in North Korea. It's like a cosmic Kim Jong-un, so to speak, as our God, as his view of who God is. God is out there to get you and zap you at any moment. And he totally misses the point of what the Bible is saying about God and his judgment. You know, God is not some tyrant up in heaven ready to zap us and destroy us. God is a loving father over a household. 
I want you to consider this. If you think it's wrong for God to have judgment and condemnation, let me ask you this. As a human being, as just a mere human being, how would you feel about God if God looked at things like Auschwitz? The evil of Auschwitz, the evil of Pol Pot, the evil of Stalin, the evil of race-based slavery, and God looked at that and said, you know what? That's just a moral oversight. I just love everybody. You know, it's just the product of their upbringing. Man, I can't hold them responsible. We would look at that and go, that is ridiculous. Someone must pay for that injustice. There needs to be judgment and justice that comes to that. So you can't fault that view of God, God being our creator, holding us responsible. But there was a price that was paid. And I want you to think for just a minute what Paul tells us in Romans 8, 3. And this should humble us and drive us to worship what Paul says here. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. God becomes flesh. But here's the caveat. He doesn't sin. He's tempted in all things like us, but he doesn't sin. He's perfect, he's holy, he's sinless, he's pure, he's beautiful. Everything about him is good. And what did we do to him? We crucified him. We commit deicide. Jesus steps out at Golgotha and he says, Hey, evil, take your best shot. I'm here. I will take the penalty for sin. I will be the one to take this on. And he allows himself to be killed. And I can't help but think how beautiful that is, that I stand in condemnation, but because of Jesus, I no longer have to be condemned because he took my penalty. I think of the story that's told about prairie fires that would break out, you know, people traveling the Oregon Trail or people out on, on the, uh, the Midwest out traveling across the prairie land, the grassland, and they would be in these large wagon trains. And one of the worst things they could see would be a prairie fire in the distance. You could see the glow maybe in the distance or the, or the smoke and because the winds could, could whip up so strong out in the grasslands of America, those fires would come racing toward them, and it would come upon them so quick that they'd be engulfed in flames, and everyone would be killed by these prairie fires. So it was really a scary prospect if you're traveling west. So they learned a real good trick. They would set the fire behind the wagon, or set the grass on fire behind the wagons. They would set it on fire and let the grass be burned all the way down to the ground. And they would take all the fuel away from the coming fire. And so as the fire would come toward them, they would move their wagons onto the scorched earth, and the fire would just pass around them. They were standing in scorched earth, and they were safe. And in a sense, when you are in Christ, you are in a safe place. He has already taken on the penalty for your sin. He is already taking on the judgment. So when you're standing in Christ, you're in a safe place. You're in a good place. Now, the story is bigger than just that. God saves us from the penalty of our sin, which that's good news. But it goes a step further. As David mentioned in our communion thoughts, Saturday was a somber day. Saturday was a sad day, but he came forth from the tomb. And because of that, we have great hope. So Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He ascends to the right hand of the Father, and he sends the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to help free us and liberate us from the bondage of sin. So Jesus, in his death, frees us from 
the shackles, the punishment of sin, the Spirit comes into our life because without the Spirit, we're, we're without hope. Because we have the epithemia, because we have this sinful flesh, the Spirit comes into us and helps change our desires and our affections where we love Christ and we desire his commandment. So we are freed from the bondage of sin, not just the penalty of sin. So this is good news as our affections change and our love changes for Jesus. The third thing I want you to see about this condemnation to freedom is this, that we must live in a new reality. There is a new reality for us because of what's happened. What Paul said so far, we were condemned, now we're free. There's a new reality of what Jesus has done for us, and we are called to live in this reality. And there's one word to understand that so many people also misunderstand. It's the word grace. This idea of grace, unmerited favor of God, grace. Now, grace is liberating. It's also frightening. If you properly understand grace, it's going to liberate you. It's also going to frighten you. You may think, now, how does grace frighten me? And let me get to that in just a second. First of all, it's liberating because I realize it's, my salvation is not based on my good works ledger. You know, imagine if God set up in heaven and he had this ledger book out and you know, he had, well, for Chris today, six bad works, five good works, bad outweighs the good. Well, if he dies or not, he's going to hell. He's done. Well, that, that doesn't give you much peace, does it? It's good news to know that my works do not determine my salvation. The finished work of Jesus. We said a few, work, a few weeks ago, to telestai, it is finished. The finished work of Jesus on the cross is what my salvation is based on. But here's where this thought should frighten you a little bit. It should frighten you because of this. If I earned my salvation, if it was an employee-employer situation where I worked and God gave me payment, then I'm, under, I'm in control of this situation. I have this under control. God, I work, you bless, okay, I'm in control. But if it's based on grace, if you were condemned without hope, and your only out was Jesus, Jesus extends this rescue for you. He saves you all by his grace. Then that means God demands all of you. God demands your heart. God demands your allegiance. And this idea of grace is so radical, you need to hear what I'm going to say here. You have died. You have died to your old way of living. You were crucified with Christ. You were dead. It's no longer you that's living, but Christ living in you. Your total allegiance, your total life is given to Christ in response to grace. It's more radical than we can imagine. Now, a lot of people misunderstand grace. I've heard people say, as the church talks more about grace, I've heard people complain to me. They've, they've said, okay, I don't like this direction of just this grace, grace, grace that's in churches. And it's led to some abuses, and they're correct. It, because there's not been a good balance at times or people have misunderstood grace. We've seen people use grace as a license to sin. But guess what? This is not a new thing. The early church had the same problem. You're going to run the risk of this when you talk about grace. People will misunderstand it. In Romans 6, the people in this church that we're talking about misunderstood grace. They were taking grace as a license to sin. And Paul stops them right in their tracks and says, you don't understand what you're talking about. God forbid you would abuse grace as a license to sin. Then Paul takes them to a tangible moment. This is not me talking. This is Paul talking. 
Paul takes them to a tangible moment in their life and says, do you not remember that you were baptized into Christ? Your baptism means something changed in you and about you. That's not me talking, that's scripture talking. Something changed about you. Brant Petrie's a theologian, and he calls baptism the sacrament of crucifixion. Now, what does he mean by that? Sacrament is just a high-tech word for saying God infuses grace through baptism. It's all God's work, God doing it to us, not something we're doing to earn it. When he talks about crucifixion, he's saying that at your baptism, that is the moment that you are saying to the world, I am crucified with Christ. I am bearing that old person, and I'm being raised a new person. I live in a new paradigm. Everything has changed. I'm no longer living in that old world of sin. I'm no longer in the, the bondage of sin. I'm living in the life of the Spirit. Everything has changed. Now, some of you, I'm going to talk to Christians here. Some of you have been baptized. Some of you have put your faith and trust in Christ, and you're living in the old paradigm still. I'm going to tell you that 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 is, I'm going to say this directly, that's insane when you think about it. Imagine it this way. Imagine if there was a a ship full of galley slaves that are rowing this ship across the ocean. Pirates have captured them, and they're beating these guys. They're feeding them just enough to survive. They're chained to this boat, and they row day in and day out. They have no existence. They can't move. They can't talk. Beaten severely. And a naval ship comes and liberates these slaves and they break the chains off these guys. And they say, hey, jump in the ship with us. We'll take you home. You're free and you're liberated. And these galley slaves say, no, we we like it like this. We like being slaves. We want to stay here chained to this boat and have this taskmaster over us that beats us and enslaves us. That's insane. But it's just as insane for a Christian who's been liberated from the bondage of sin and the penalty of sin to live in sin and the bondage of the evil one. It's just as insane to live in sin if you've been liberated by the power and work of Jesus Christ and his spirit in your life. Now, we may have people out there today, maybe you're watching you're not a Christian, and in this strange time, I would ask you, if you are convicted by the gospel, if you've got questions, please feel free to email me, and we'll talk about this salvation that we have in Jesus Christ But for Christians out there right now, for our church family, I want to remind you of this. I want you to lean into this statement. Now there is no more condemnation in Christ. There's no more condemnation in Christ. I want you throughout this week to think about that, meditate on that, lean into that, and live that reality.